Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills. Hi, Cade. Oh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I got up early this morning to journey off the island and saw everyone heading the other way with their surfboards on top of their car. <laughs> <laughs> and figured I was doing the wrong we thing. We attempted to turn around. Go, yeah, Bron will be right. She could do the show on her own today. Oh, I don't know whether that's true, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, before we get into the program, just acknowledging we are broadcasting from the unceded lands of Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation and we repay our respects to Elders past and present and extend our respects, respects to all uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening today. Big thanks to Tim Thorpe for Vital Bits. Very special guests this morning, Johnny Von Goes and Silly Church. Yeah, from down my way too. Yeah. You, the, you could have hitched a ride with them, Cade. Yeah. <laughs> Would have been a joyful ride in, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so they're having a launch of their album. Um, Johnny goes to church next weekend. Such a cool name too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can catch all of the details for that on the Triple R website. We might post them via our Facebook page as well. So thank you, Tim, very much for your uh, six hours of vital bits. Thanks to Andrew for soulful bits. Thanks to Steph for um, things to do today. And yes, you can catch Tim as always next weekend for uh, for vital bits, which will get you get you through your uh, weekend or at least get you going on your weekend. Uh, on today's program, very exciting to welcome into the studio shortly Neil Blake for his first baykeeping segment for 2024. Uh, so Neil's going to be bringing up to speed on what he's been doing over the summer. Lots of beach monitoring, uh, lots of shoreline shell surveys and um, some more coming up as well. Potential links with Northern Pacific sea stars. Big numbers. Yeah, we've, sea stars we've already sort of had him in the studio and he's just, he hasn't said anything. He's holding all the good stuff we haven't before welcomed, he gets on air. Again, we haven't welcomed him in yet. So oh, sorry, so Mike. do that. We're peeking behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> we are. Um, so, uh, and also next weekend is Clean Up Australia Day. So Neil's going to tell us about what he's planning for Clean Up Australia Day as well. Um, we've got a bit of news, a few things to plug. And Cade, you've lined up our second guest. Yeah, so actually through Joni Penny Fitzsimmons, who the um, Stingray Diaries, who we've had on the show a couple of times, she's now up at Charles Darwin University and she put me in touch with Julia Constance, who's doing a PhD up there. But actually for part of her honours, she discovered that a species no longer exists. Mm. It's the first marine extinction ever declared and um, it came out just before Christmas and we're going to have a chat to her about how, how you go about it, what that means and I guess what is changing or what has changed as a result of that and interestingly, interestingly enough I thought she'd be hounded by media but she really hasn't been so it's one of those things that slipped under the radar so mm. we'll dig into that a bit more. I've, I found myself really scratching my head when you mentioned that, that this is the first marine species declared extinct. I thought really? Given how many terrestrial species have been declared extinct? Yeah, marine fish species. So we may have lost others. Um, We're not quite sure. And I guess we can ask her about that. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty around saying something doesn't exist in the water. Um, We sort of, you know, 
we've got it wrong terrestrially as well, where we've said, oh, this no longer exists, and then, you know, it gets cited again, yeah. which is great when that happens. Um, but, yeah, so I want to talk to you about what that means in the water and how you actually go about declaring it, because it is, as you said, people are like, surely there's one out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, well, hopefully there is. Nerida's there here with us panelling today. Nerida? Oh, no, I was just holding up my finger to say one. Yeah, well, that doesn't <laughs> really help, does it? And it'd be like the white rhino in Africa yes. that's, being, that's constantly protected. Yes. Yeah, so we'll dig into that. Excellent. And then to close the show, we're going to be speaking with Lauren Hill, or Lauren L. Hill. Um, she's a film director, Patagonia ambassador, so much more, former under-18 longboard world champion. Uh, and also partner of Dave Rastovich. And so they've teamed up to put together a short film called Kin, which is being released this week. Um, It's going to be free to watch. You can watch it through the Patagonia website, just drawing attention to the benefits of marine protection and ocean protection in particular, and really part of a big campaign to get 30% of Australian ocean waters uh, protected by 2030. It's a big target. We did discuss that oh, a while back, how Tanya Plibersek had come out and said, oh, we already have 30%, but um, all the scientists said, no, that's a complete load of crap because <laughs> it's basically in name only, not actually in protection status. So that's it. Refer- it's good to see this is getting a push. That's right. They're referred to as paper parks. Yes. Yes, because on paper it looks like they're protected, but mm. if you kind of scratch the surface, there's all kinds of stuff that's allowed to happen. So, yeah. All right, let's have a quick look at today's weather. Let's have a look. So today we've got a top of 30 and we've got northerly winds all morning up until about lunchtime. So to all those people heading down for a surf, good call. Uh, There's a bit of swell around at the moment, probably around that four-foot mark. And with those northerly winds, pretty much everywhere we'll be firing. We've got a high tide today at 1.40 and a low... Oh, yeah, the high's at 1.40... And then I forgot to write down the, t- the time of the low. I just wrote down how high, how low it was. But it's about six hours later. <laughs> Give you the, the clue. About, <laughs> about 7.40, give or take. It's fine, yeah. So we've got some beautiful conditions to get down to the beach today. Um, we've got no rain for the rest of the week all the way through to Saturday. And um, so a bit cooler tomorrow, 21, Tuesday, 30. Wednesday's going to be 36, apparently quite windy. It's a big watch out for those in bushfire-prone oh, areas yeah. to... You know, just keep an eye on that weather. Thursday 25, Friday 25 and Saturday 22. We had some beautiful weather, which tends to be the way once everyone either goes back to work or school. We have these really lovely patches of weather and all their holiday houses are sitting empty. I've got a uh, message that's come through from Cliff. Cliff's still in Antarctica. Oh, He's coming back soon. not quite as warm, is it? <laughs> not quite as warm. He says, good morning, Radio Marinara. I'm still living the dream. Thank you, Aussie taxpayers. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Cliff. He sent us a little video snippet from uh, where he is at 8.30 last night. It does indeed look absolutely magnificent. Anyway, forecast for today, they're heading from a maximum of minus 7.6 with a wind chill factor that will feel like or it will be minus 14.1 with 48% humidity. And, uh, oh, flight and shipping messages. Being kind to others is a way of being good to yourself. (laughs) 
There's something uh, in that for all of us. There is. Good on you, Cliff. Thank you very much. We do love getting your um, your uh, Antarctica weather forecast every Sunday morning. Uh, we've got time for a little bit of news. Actually, I wanted to mention this one and to also plug the Triple R text line. If you want to send us a message any time between now and uh, and 10 o'clock, ideally kind of try and make it before about 10 to 10 because we might miss it like we did with this one last week, uh, 0466981027. That's 0466981027. And we'll keep an eye on the text line. Um, anything that you're observing or if you've got... Uh, I don't know, maybe a community event you'd like to plug, just let us know about it. We're happy to do that. Um, so we had uh, a message from Cassandra uh, who sent this through. Oh, 9.34. Apologies, Cassandra. She sent it through in plenty of time last week. We just missed it. Um, saying the Barwon Estuary Heritage Centre at Jetty Road, Barwon Heads, has a collection of shipwreck artefacts artifacts collected from local shipwrecks in the 1970s, especially from the Earl of Charlemont, open Sunday afternoon from 1 till 4. Um, there you go. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. With great pleasure, we welcome into the studio Neil Blake, our baykeeper. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. It's a great pleasure to be here surfing the airways with you again. <laughs> it's great to have you yeah, back with us. There's a bit of a swell going on. That makes me feel better, Neil. <laughs> I'm doing surfing of some sort while I'm here. Um, so you've been very busy this summer, Neil. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been a good summer, not too hot. Pretty, yeah, pretty cool, really, in a sense. So it's been relatively pleasant out on the beaches and... Occasionally there are a few strong winds, but uh, it's been terrific doing lots of shoreline shell surveys, uh, and including one yesterday. As a matter of fact, I went down to Seaford after uh, Earthcare and uh, 48 volunteers and Sabrina, uh, uh, the Echo Centre's marine biologist, uh, did a uh, North Pacific Sea Star collection removal, uh, and they got 7,630 of the little critters, wow. uh, and they're all juveniles. Oh, really? And so when you say juvenile, how big is a juvenile? Well, that's a good question, Kate. <laughs> okay. I was hoping you would <laughs> ask that. That's a bit of a debate about that. Uh, it's about uh, 10 centimetres is one, one uh, approach, and another one says about uh, six and a half uh, so centimetres. So. And so when we use the word juvenile, it usually refers to they are unable to reproduce at that stage. That's the idea, And yeah. so generally, like most species, do have a size that you know, they start to mature at. Yeah. But obviously mm-hmm. there's a bit of variation there yeah. with the sea stars. That's right. So again, I, I guess it depends on where they're living and what uh, resources are available to them, that sort of thing. But uh, these apparently were uh, not of a reproductive age, which is a good thing. They're out of the system now. So before they can release their 20 million eggs each. <laughs> so we've, we've discussed this before about their reproductive output and how amazing that is. When you say 20 million eggs, is that like I, an I individual? Count, I didn't count them myself. I no, no. <laughs> but is that an individual spawning event? So like one individual can release up to that many Eggs? I, I'm not entirely certain about that, but I mean, uh, I, I would think that may be possible, yes. Wow. All right. Well, what did you find on the beach? Well, yeah, uh, those of are familiar with Seaford and the Chelsea Caram area will know that there's a lot of elongated wedge shells. That's those little uh, 
fragile sort of bivalves, and there were thousands of them. Um, generally speaking, you can tell whether or not uh, that bivalves have recently departed from the world by the fact that they're still attached. The two halves, uh, the two shells, are still connected by the hinge. Because uh, the hinge is basically living tissue, and yeah. so. Yeah, and the other, th- the other um, op- option is uh, the external sort of, I think it's called a periostracum, sort of like an outer skin which has got a bit of colour in it too. So uh, there weren't too m- any um, uh, hinged uh, elongated wedge shells, but there were a couple of um, the uh, thin-ribbed cockles, which are a beautiful shell, uh, quite large too, chunky things, and uh, there were a lot of those on the beach that I think must have been taken by the the Northern Pacific Sea Stars. So super important, these clean-up events um, of the Northern Pacific Sea Star, particularly when they're at that juvenile stage before they've had an opportunity to grow and then, of course, reproduce, because when you've got that many, you're talking about 7,000 juveniles collected. Imagine if all of those 7,000 then had another spawning event. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't take long before it gets almost uncontrollable. No, probably this coming winter would be their time to actually uh, shed eggs. So, uh, yeah, it's it's great that they've been taken away out of the system. So good work for Earthcare and also the the Pest Watch Rapid Response Team. It's really good to see that that's actually having effect. There are 48 volunteers, including kids involved too. So as well as being a a practical exercise, there's a lot of education that gets part of it and and identity building, I suppose, and it's just people loving the bay and showing they can do something about it. And what happens to those 7,000 sea stars after they've been taken out of the water? Because I'm assuming there's quite a big volume that you're sort of left with. Are they... Like disposed of in landfill, or are they composted? Is there something that can be they turned into ninja stars? <laughs> what happens to them? I have compost- Christmas decorations. I, I've composted them quite successfully in the past. They don't have much nutrient value though, so you do need to add a few things. Lots of boron, apparently. Don't know what boron is good for, but uh, uh, and also they're not particularly tasty. You've tried everything then. I haven't haven't really given a a great uh, plug or effort with the different methods of cooking or anything like that. But uh, they're not, not, you know, they don't seem to be on the market. We had Earthcare on the program two weeks ago and we were talking exactly about this, about about what it is that we do um, with these sea stars when they're brought ashore because mm. at the end of the day they are living animals even though you know they, they cause enormous damage to our local um, species particularly our bivalves in the bay but they are euthanized as you know they're euthanized humanely before that's right they're disposed uh, of yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and my it, thing though is that you don't just chuck them back in the water because they may be eggs or whatever you know it's not every time that you just collect only juveniles no that's but, right yeah, the, the disposal is important from just containing the actual um, re- reproductive potential of yeah. the species and the other message with the northern pacific sea star which we always need to mention every time is that it has to be done under permit it's mm. super important that that happens um that uh it obviously the first thing is that it prevents confusion over whether what you're picking up is a northern pacific sea star or not because yeah. the last thing we want is for people to be pulling out native species that uh that are you know meant to be in the bay yeah exactly mm. Mm. um you mentioned that this collection was in Seaford. Seaford is one location around a very big embayment. 
What do you know? What's happening? Is, is there a plan to maybe look at other locations, particularly sort of around that eastern part of Port Phillip? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I've actually been spending a bit of time with the beach patrol groups um, from Chelsea down to Frankston, and uh, we'll be also going down to um, uh, Mount Martha this Saturday to do an Asian shore crab uh, ramble, uh, and so. You know, there's, there's eyes on the bay, I suppose, on that part of the bay. So if there's any, if any of the Northern Pacifics turn up, uh, I'm sure they'll be spotted. So for listeners who may be wondering about the Asian shore crab, we've talked about it a lot over the years, but maybe for people who are still wondering, well, what is the Asian shore crab and why is it such a problem? Well, we don't know that it's, it's such a problem, but it's certainly an exotic species in the bay. It's um, only been known to be in the bay probably, I think, maybe for less than 10 years. Uh, so we, we need to know more about the range that it's covering where it's, and also whether it has any seasonal movements and get to understand it better. But uh, it's certainly in other, other areas where it's been established, other c- continents or countries, uh, it has actually outcompeted some of the native um, crabs that have, have similar habitats. So uh, it has a likelihood of doing that here too. So on watch? On watch, yeah. So, and, you know, they can be removed, again, under permit, if you actually uh, can, you know, have done, undertaken the appropriate training, etc. And that's what uh, this Saturday will be about, between 10, 2 and 4pm. Uh, we'll be going for a ramble in the rock pools down, down at Mount Martha. Uh, that's off the esplanade at Mount Martha. Uh, near Kilburn Grove we'll be meeting. If people are interested in coming down to that, they'll be most welcome. Yeah, great. And is that um, that for Clean Up Australia Day or is that separate? No, that's, that's, that's actually on Saturday. So uh, Clean Up Australia Day is a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So for Clean Up Australia Day, um, I'm particularly interested and going to be partnering, collaborating with the Beach Patrol Chelsea, Seafood and Frankston to do some microplastics audits on on that very day. We're actually really focusing on that 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 embayment that you mentioned. That, uh, but particularly from the Mordialic Creek down to the Cannonook Creek, uh, that's where the major nurdle infestation has been. In, in it was shown in the Clean Bay Blueprint Project. So. Uh, we really want to sort of zero in and, and get some really good good data by doing audits on the same day, you know. So if there's a week apart or something, it all makes it a little bit loose in terms of how you might be able to draw conclusions. Uh, so it, yeah, it's going to be great to really focus on, particularly nurdles, because we know with the drain sorts project that there still are factories out there in the burbs that are, that are actually allowing thousands of them to escape into the stormwater system that ultimately get to the bay. Very difficult to trace them back to because these are little, tiny, tiny little, you know, they're what, maybe one, two millimetres across? Yeah, about five millimetres. Oh, yeah. five. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, but being able to then trace them back to wherever they might have come from, particularly if you're looking in an area like that, which is sort of at the end point. Yeah, that's right. From... You know, a huge area. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that the nodal standard um, 
Chelsea or Seaford, for example, that that, that we've studied, um, there seems to be an increase in in the winter time, which may be associated with the northerly stronger northerly winds in winter pushing them down oh, from right. the Yarra. Oh, okay, oh, that makes yeah. it even more confusing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but well, you, there is a you can actually identify polymers if you've got the right equipment and the technology. So, and also any contaminants they may be carrying or other additives. So, it's a becomes a more expensive process. Yeah. Though. Anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, no, I think well that'd probably do for now, brother. <laughs> now we're listening to me forever. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you, Neil, and uh, if what you've said has sort of sparked some interest from people, and why wouldn't it? And they'd like to come and take part in some of your amazing community uh, advocacy work, environmental advocacy work, but working with community as well. How can they get in touch with you? Well, email is probably the easiest way, baykeeper at ecocentre, with an R-E on the end, dot com. Excellent. We've got a, um, a photo that has uh, we've used for this week's Facebook announcement about today's program, and I'll put a link to that. I haven't done it yet, but I'll put a link to that yeah, on there as well. The Port Phillip Echo Centre website is another place to go, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Welcome to 2024. We'll catch you in a month. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And we've got a minute or two for a couple of quick announcements. Kate, do you want to go first? So I just had a quick plug for the Ocean Grove Coast Care. They have an upcoming marine biology talk with... Talking about the Great Southern Reef with friend of the show, Prue Francis, is going to be there, and Maddie O'Brien, who's a local marine biologist. It is on this Thursday, the 29th of February at 7 till 8.30 at the Ballerine Training and Community Centre, which is 1 John Dory Drive, which seems quite appropriate <laughs> given it's marine science talk. Um, there's no booking. It's free. Just rock up and learn heaps about the Great Southern Reef. And for those that haven't heard Prue speak, highly recommended. She's such an articulate and very passionate and also a book writer about the Great Southern Reef. So lots of knowledge to be shared there. Excellent. I um, I saw a news report last night on a commercial news channel, nearly fell off my chair, about the Great Southern Reef. Did you see that? Sta- no, I haven't, but it, the words, it's starting to grow. Yeah. We're starting to see it getting used interchangeably now, which is great. They're talking about um, giant kelp forests in Tasmania and uh, work, sort of partnership work, Nature Conservancy was mentioned, as well as um, CSIRO. Um, Craig Johnson was um, interviewed, and they're talking about the work that they're doing to sort of try and um, genetically determine the types of kelp that are going to be more resilient to ocean warming and and their work there. But the fact that this was on uh, a commercial news network, just as I said, nearly fell off my chair. It's exciting. (laughs) It's good. I like to think we've had some small part in that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just one last quick plug, and then we're going to play some news. Um, uh, Disabled Surfers Association, uh, Ocean Grove, help us put smiles on dials. They've got an event happening next weekend, 3rd of March on Sunday at Ocean Grove. Um, So they're always after volunteers and participants. Free surf days for people of any age with any disability. So you can register at uh, disabledsurfers.org disabledsurfers.org and we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well so uh, good on you wonderful people get down to Ocean Grove and be part of that 
All right, 9.30, uh, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R, And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Julia Constance about the Java Stingery from uh, Charles Darwin University. Julia is. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. And on the line, we have Julia Constance, a PhD student at Charles Darwin University and lead researcher in the study that declared the first ever marine fish extinction. Not something any, I imagine, any researcher wants to do. Um, thank you for getting up early on a Sunday in Darwin. Good morning, Julia. Thank you for having me. Now, earlier in the show, we had a weather report from Antarctica. Can you give us what's going on at the opposite end of the country? Just think, like, as much sweat as you can physically produce. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's pa- not very nice up here right now. You've painted the picture. Yeah. First up, I just wanted to learn a little about yourself and I guess how you ended up doing this work. Did you grow up and study in Darwin or have you sort of moved up there as a result of a convoluted life path? (laughs) Definitely a convoluted life path. I actually grew up in uh, northwest New South Wales on a crop farm. Um, went to study my undergrad, started volunteering in a whole bunch of different spaces, ended up in Sharks and Rays, and then moved up to Darwin for my honours and stayed for my PhD. That is quite a convoluted sort of path there, from crops to PhDs, and now we're on to the fish that is unfortunate enough to be the first ever known extinction, the Java stingery. What do we know about the fish? Like, what does it look like? How big does it get? You know, what the life history stuff... And do we need to start yeah, talking so... in past tense? Oh, we do. I need to correct yes. my tense. I just had a conversation with Tim about this this morning. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah. We threw you sideways there. <laughs> what, what do we know about no. What did we know about the Java stingaray? Yes, so it's a, um extremely rare species. Only one specimen was ever caught and recorded, um, and that was from 1862, a... Um, a naturalist was travelling around Indonesia and collect, collected this specimen from a fish market in Jakarta um, and then was luck, luckily enough he put it in a museum and described it as a species. Um, so the Java stingery is a, it's think like a stingray but smaller, it's got a little caudal fin on its tail um, and it's <clears throat> it's really quite unique for its area. There's only two stingerees um, in Indonesia at all, and they're completely far away from each other. So the Java stingery is Western Indonesia, only found in the Java Sea, and the Kai stingery is Eastern Indonesia, only found on the east side. Julia, it's interesting, the sample that we're talking about that you're describing was taken in the late 1800s, and I think we probably, I mean, certainly where my mind went with this one is that, oh, well, this is just another, you know, consequence of overfishing, which it may well have been, but but certainly not something that's happened in the current era. It's something that happened a long time ago. Yeah, so it really probably happened at least 50 years ago, um, this extinction, but unfortunately it is so difficult to track extinctions in the marine, um, in the marine area. Um, so, you know, there's probably plenty of species that have gone extinct that we really just haven't noticed and the work just hasn't been done yet, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a bit sobering to think of because, I mean, the only reason we know this exists, as you said, it was this opportunistic thing where a naturalist collected a specimen and then happened to give it to a museum because often naturalists keep them in jars of jars of like, or pickled on their sort of shelf or something. So the fact that you even know about this um, is quite surprising. And how did you find out about it, given that there was just this one specimen? Yeah, so 
Yeah, so this was part of my honours project. Um, I was looking at three really rare species of um, what we call lost sharks. Um, so I was looking at the Java stingaree, um, the Red Sea torpedo, and the Pondicherry shark, which are all pretty much only known for museum specimens um, and from a long time ago, um, or their taxonomy is a bit confused um, in the case of the Pondicherry shark. So, yeah, this was a project that kind of stemmed from a longer-term project on lost sharks. And so, so with the whole lost shark thing, someone actually did the work to go to, like, basically put together a list and go, okay, what do we know about all these species? And you sort of went to the ones that you knew the least, I take it. Is that...? Yeah, yeah. So there's, like, a list of species that really there needs to be some effort to be put in to go and find them um and these three were certainly the most um most rare or at least the most rare that we know enough about to kind of work on and then i guess what i'm really curious about is like what is involved in declaring something extinct like as you said it's such a difficult environment to work in and to say that oh that's it we there's no more um i'm assuming you sort of you know, tried to do everything you could to like find some specimens out there, but then what's the process that you go through to actually have this recognised? Yeah, so it was a very long process. This is the culmination of three years of work at this point. Um, so the IUCN Red List is the global standard in listing a species as um, near threatened or endangered or critically endangered or extinct. Um, so we used the IUCN Red List models, which were developed in 2017, um, which were designed specifically to look at these kind of really rare species um, and determine whether it should be listed as critically endangered, critically endangered, possibly extinct or extinct. Um, so then I compiled as much information as I could get on the Java stingaree um, in terms of its geographic range, the duration and severity of threats, um, how well it's been surveyed for, over the past 161 years um, and looked at how all of those kind of things work together um, in, in, as, a, as playing roles in it, this extinction. And when you say, like, how much it's been surveyed for, is that like walking around a fish market, like the first specimen was found, or is it actually going out into the field and trying to find it in areas where they think it might be, or is it like a combination of all of them? Yeah, so this species hasn't been specifically surveyed for. Um, unfortunately, even policymakers in Indonesia forgot that this thing ever existed. It's been so long since it's been seen. Um, but Indonesia has done a really, really good job of surveying sharks and rays in fish markets. So Indonesia has been the world's largest fish shark fishing nation at least since early in, since 2000, but probably for longer. Um, and since 2001, there's been extensive surveys of fish markets um, all through Java, um, the area that this species was probably from, um, and they're really good at identifying every single species down to species level rather than grouping them into urolophids or um, stingrays and stuff like that. So they do a really good job. Julia, I've just been having a look at the IUCN website. So for listeners who uh, may be wondering, IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So it's kind of, it's an offshoot really from the UN, isn't it? United Nations. There's the United Nations, is it EP, UNEP, the Environment Program? And then the, uh, and then 
I think that's what the EP stands for. Julia was nodding. Yes. <laughs> and then from there, the IUCN. There's seven um, different categories of the red list. So it goes from not evaluated, data deficient, least concern, near threatened, vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and then extinct. Does it when you when you go and declare um, a species extinct? Is it is it a stepwise process where you start right at the bottom, or can you kind of leapfrog into um, you know, up, up higher on that list, on that hierarchy? Yes, yeah, so this species was listed as critically endangered, possibly extinct in 2021. Um, and so for each listing that you do, there's a number of set criteria that you need to use. Um, so back then, um, the model was used, so it kind of gets you past using that criteria. Um, and then this um, new extinction um, listing built off that original critically endangered, possibly extinct. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and we touched on it earlier, but I guess I just wanted your views a bit more clear on, like, so what possibly led to the extinction? Are they, are they eaten? Are stingarees eaten? Like, is this something that, you know, fishermen might have just keep on throwing back because they don't take it to market? Or, like, what do we know about its sort of use? Or Yeah, so stingrays and rays more, more broadly in Indonesia are very widely used for food, for their leather, so you can use their skin to make leather. A lot of um, rays, even with like large spines, like the bowmouth guitar fish, they're used to make jewellery. Um, and all of the larger species are generally used for fins, um, particularly rays, because they have very good quality meat. Um, but there is pretty much no discard at sea in Indonesia, certainly not around Java. Um, so, you know, you look at the records of fish market surveys and there's stingrays as small as nine centimetres wide being taken to market and sold for food, um, whether it's for actual humans to eat or whether it might be pet food at that kind of size. Um, but, yeah, they are very, very widely utilised um, in, in, in Indonesia. That very comprehensively sort of covers, I guess, that whole question about how you go about sort of declaring them extinct. Now, just... Before we head off, I just want to ask, you must have been hounded by the media over this, given it's the first time in the world. You're probably sick of speaking to people about it. Has that been the case? And what's, what are some of the outcomes of this finding? It certainly was not widely taken up in Australia at all. This is my first Australian interview for this, ah, um, this which came out in December last year. Um, but it was certainly widely taken up in Indonesia, which is a good thing, and um, our Indonesian colleagues um, got talked to quite a lot in the media over there. Um, one of my colleagues actually got recognised at the airport um, by just a border force person who recognised her from the news. Um, so it was a very large discussion about this extinction in, Indone in Indonesia, which is where it really needs to be talked about. That's fantastic. Now, I know you're doing some really exciting stuff for your PhD, which we don't have time to get into here, so we're going to have to invite you back. Um, thank yeah. you so much, for your time, Julia, and go and enjoy the rest of your sweaty day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to speak with you, Julia, and we'd love to catch up with you again about the rest of your research for sure. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
we've come a long way in our collective efforts to legislate marine environment protection, but there's still such a long way to go. Governments have come and gone over the last 20 years promising to consider more, better protection, but without the push of community behind organised campaigns, progress is slow and often non-existent. Well, to that end, there's hope on the horizon with a new campaign being led by Patagonia to establish 30% of marine protection for Australia's oceans by 2030. It's got growing momentum and a short film behind it with the family of uh, surfing legend, we'll call him that, and environmental campaigner Dave Rastovich at its centre. Titled Kin, the film is set for release this week and we're very pleased to welcome via Zoom its director, Lauren L. Hill, to talk about Kin, its purpose and uh, where you can watch it for free this coming Thursday, 29th of February. And I think we have a special guest with Lauren as well. Good morning, Lauren, and good morning, Dave. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Thanks so, for having us. Yeah. So great to have you both with us. And, um, Dave, you're a bit of a bonus extra for us. We thought we were going to be speaking with Lauren, and we will, Lauren. Um, but great to have you with us as well. And welcome back, because you've been on our program a couple of times. Yeah, great to be here. And it's always good to just talk all things aquatic. Yes, indeed. All things wet and salty, as we say. Yeah, yeah very cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, now, uh, before we get into Kim, can we just spend maybe 30 seconds just talking about Patagonia and your role? Because it's important within the context of what this short film's all about. Lauren, go along. <laughs> Ladies first, please. <laughs> Um, I'm a surf ambassador for Patagonia Australia, and I guess my role is really to um, make sense of the campaigns that the company is driving and try to find ways to connect the surfing community to those important efforts right now. Like you said before, we're working on trying to uh, talk about marine protected areas and how important, we all know how important the ocean is to our everyday lives trying to work out what can we do about protecting them and safeguarding them into the future. And we've yeah. come... Like, oh, sorry, Dave, no, you go. No, I was just going to back Lauren up in that <clears throat> her ability to actually make marine parks interesting um, is what Patagonia has called on because, you know, when we see MPA, I don't think many of us know what that even stands for. Uh, when we hear marine protected area, we're like, well, what does that mean? Um, and I think that's a large part of what this whole movement is about, is uh, clarifying what a marine protected area is and what levels of protection they actually have, because we, we see around Australia that so many of these protected areas on paper are actually being exploited by industry um, and individuals. So uh, I think that's where we're really pumped about this and making things like kin and working with Patagonia and communities is all to that end, clarify it. Yeah, we were talking about at the start of the program that they're referred to as paper parks, and there's so many of them. Um, you know, this is, the, this is the issue that we have, particularly people mm-hmm. in power in politics who say, oh, well, we've got this, you know, large percentage of, of marine uh, environment already protected. And as we said at the start of the program, you scratch the surface and there's a lot of stuff that's being allowed to happen. Like you said, Dave, it's, it's um, exploitation happening there. So let's get to Kin and... Uh, you, it's been shot at Lord Howe Island. Why Lord Howe Island? Oh, wow. Lord Howe has been at the top of my must-visit list for a long time because of its incredible extremities, the deep trench there, 600 metres of water. We got to swim in with a local pod of dolphins and then the beautiful towering emerald peaks of Mount Gower and Mount Lidgeford. And, um, yeah, it just looks like this incredible place with surf and also... 
we've been engaging with Patagonia on the marine protected areas issue. And we have a six-year-old and, you know, we try to think about ways to age appropriately talk about what's happening to our planet, what's happening to our climate, how we can engage with the world in a helpful regenerative way instead of a destructive way. And so really we wanted to go and show him, this is what it looks like when we get it right. We can get it right. There are places full of hope where communities are uh, working together to safeguard the places that love, that, that they love, that's, that are supporting them. <laughs> and so he's just popped in right now. Yeah, we wanted to show our little guy, yeah, what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I managed to catch, a, I guess, a sneak view of it at uh, the Phillip Island Board Riders Club, Patagonia, were down there promoting the work that you're doing, and they showed a few minutes of it. And the thing I loved, I think, was there someone's mum involved in it as well? You sort of had that multi-generation yeah. thing going on, and... I guess that's where the story is with MPAs. It's about, you know, protecting for the future. And so having all those generations there, that was the thing that really stuck out to me as far as a, a film and an image. It was like, how cool is it to see, like, three generations of people hanging out enjoying this? And I guess that's the best thing when you go to the beach is seeing all those different age groups, and it's obviously important to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's my, my mama, Yvonne. She's in her 60s and it has always been a water woman but came to surfboard riding only in the last few years and she's part of actually the fastest growing part of the surfing organism right now is women over the age of 50 i learned yesterday <laughs> through lauren's research and um but if you go to the gold coast you'll see it in act in action there's a huge movement of women of that age um taking off and and surfing and my mum's part of that and so yeah having the three generations there allowing us to look back in time and especially on Lord Howe, you can look back um, in time through the elders on the island who tell you that when they were kids, there weren't any seabirds on the shores of those beaches there. They were out on the outer islands, but not on Lord Howe itself. And then now there's tens of thousands of seabirds nesting in the dune line. You walk through them and by them and they they shit on your shoulder and they land on your head and it's just, it's amazing. And all of those locals will tell you that that wasn't the case when they were growing up and that we have this amazing story of people caring for country out there, um, taking away the invasive um, pests that were on the island and restoring a level of safety and balance for those seabird communities. And, and that's a really great story and we need those sort of stories where we can see that we are capable of um, bringing places and species back to a healthy level, a healthy population, and it just increases the quality of life for everyone. The locals there are so stoked on that, and yeah. all the visitors like us are the same. Yeah. Part of the incredible thing about Lord Howe is it's this patchwork of protected areas, and what we were really honing in on in our time there was the idea of a sanctuary or no-take zone. And so those are places that are pretty much completely protected from... Um, extraction, fish, you know, commercial fishing, mining, that sort of thing. And that's really what we're working on with this campaign is to make sure Australia creates a network of 30% sanctuary zones around our our land. Excellent. Excellent note to end on because we're wrapping up our show. We've got to make way for the next one to come in. But can we stay in touch on this? Because this is just the beginning, isn't it? This film's being released this week and this is a long campaign ahead. So um, we'd love to catch up with you again and uh, and just really continue to follow this. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Thanks so much for yeah. joining us. It's a, It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll catch you again soon.
Thanks for having us. Have a nice day. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.